I'm trying to lean into joy. I'm trying to lean into things that interest me and, and draw my attention naturally. I'm trying to lean into pursuit that doesn't necessarily have a clear productivity endpoint and then weave those into work where it feels appropriate. Welcome to Working Your Way, the podcast dedicated to unraveling the journey of being authentic in the workplace. My guest today is Echo Sandy Thomas. He's the founder of Inside Voices, an online platform where people of color can review companies and talk about how inclusive they really are. And hot off the presses, Inside Voices is now partnering with Canaries, a company that leverages data analytics to help organizations build better DEI strategies. And as with most entrepreneurial ventures, Echo's company was born out of a personal origin story. And we talk about a chapter in his career where he really needed what he's building right now. In our conversation, Echo shares about the experiences that he had with discrimination, leaving the corporate world, and how he's navigating life as an entrepreneur. He's often talked about his company and the growth of his company, but today we really dig into who he is as a human and how he's evolving. So I'm thrilled to have this conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. Welcome Echo to Working Your Way. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk a lot about you and you've been um, out in in the public sphere talking a lot about what you've been working on. And I really want to tap into some of these moments in your career that have been pivotal for you in, in your authenticity journey. But we'll kind of start with where maybe one of the biggest pivots might have been. And in 2021, you left the corporate world and started Inside Voices. So can you share just what is Inside Voices and why did you start it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Inside Voices is an online platform that helps job seekers understand how companies really treat people of color. Um, it came out of my own personal experience. Um, you know, they say those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Uh, I joined a company having vetted them really carefully. I read everything about them online, every Glassdoor review. I spoke to people who'd worked with them. I got this feeling that this was an organization that I could really, you know, hang my hat on. This was my long-term plan. And then long story short, two years later, I was leaving, having filed a racial discrimination complaint against my manager, had the company not just, you know, fail to find any evidence as is the common story, but really, you know, reject my assertions, push me out and sort of really, you know, retaliate against me. And on the way out, I spoke to other colleagues whom, had I spoken to before I joined, I would never have joined. And they really made me understand that this was what this organization was about behind the scenes. You know, the reputation externally was not, was almost known internally to not be correct. And I had effectively been duped. You know, there had been other Black people that had gone through the same experience and the same organization before me. This institutional problem of, failing to create a safe place for Black leaders, failing to stand up for marginalized employees was just where we were. I felt tricked. 
I realized that there was no way to get that, you know, for me to share my story with anybody else who might fall into that trap. And so I built one. Did you ever set up, set out to be an entrepreneur? Was that ever a dream of yours? Kind of. You know, I think with, um, you know, the glamorization of Silicon Valley, I think a lot of people, myself included, fell into the, you know, fell for the myth of the, you know, the, the one person, entrepreneur, the one man entrepreneur, the coder that changes the world, the, you know, the, the, the social network <laughs> movie uh, in real life. And for a long time, I felt constrained by the corporate world. I was exhausted with the masking that I was having to do. I was tired of following rules that didn't make any sense. I knew that the majority of my skills were not being utilized. And so in the back of my mind, I always imagined that at some point there would be some endeavor that I would move towards that would, you know, that would finally seem like it made sense. Uh, I'd had several ideas over the years that seemed like a good idea, but didn't make sense for me personally. They didn't fit with my story. And one night, like I said, when I was going through this experience and I was like, there should be like a glass door for diversity. Not only was it obvious that that needed to exist, but it was obvious to me that I was the right person to build it. And so that was when I moved from, you know, what I call entrepreneur to entrepreneur. I started building that night. Wow. And so it was... I used every resource that I could to figure out what was really going on behind the scenes at this company. And yet I didn't find the truth. And so you went and built it. We tell people, you know, oh, when you're at an interview, it should be going both ways. You're also interviewing the company, but we don't really talk about how one-sided or lopsided that, that reflection is. You know, you are not going to get an accurate picture of what a company is and companies don't necessarily, it's not in their interest to show you the truth. It's in their interest to put their best foot forward as much of it as it is for you to, you know, hide some of the worst parts about you when you go into an interview. Yeah. And I would add to that, everybody has a different experience of that company. So whatever resources that are out there, to your point, right, of like, okay, who am I hearing from? All the resources that I did find were about people that things were good for them. And and clearly they were not representative of, of your experience and clearly your identity as well. But what was it like over the course of that two years to kind of feel unseen, unutilized, actually, you know, experience probably microaggressions and, and macroaggressions. I don't even know if that's a term, but like overt discrimination. Like what was your day-to-day like? Uh, at that company, it was all under the radar. Um, and honestly, that was probably, it was more confusing. Like I was bewildered the entire time. You know, I went from uh, the first year I had a manager who was extremely supportive. This was my hiring manager. He was a little bit too relaxed, <laughs> if anything, um, but very much, you know, a fan of mine and gave me the opportunity to succeed. And when he was there, I was doing a great job and everyone loved me. And they were talking about how quickly I was going to rise in the company and, and all the good things. And then he left. I got a new manager and I mean, the tide turned on a dime, you know, day one, this manager arrived and I remember I came home and I told my wife, I was like, oh, she hates me. Like, you know, it, I'm rarely in a room with someone who I can feel they viscerally dislike me immediately. Um, but that's what was happening. And it just didn't stop. You know, I could identify that there was a difference, 
in how I was being treated versus how others were being treated. But, you know, you search for all the reasons why that could be happening. So I just spent a lot of my free time thinking about it. Why, why does she interrupt me in meetings when I'm speaking? Why, uh, why do I seem to be blamed for things that are outside of my remit? Why do, why does it seem like opportunities are not coming my way? Like just trying to make sense of it, trying to think of a reason, you know, over the course of probably 10 months, I really came to understand that it was only two people on the team that were being treated that way. And they were both people of color. And there were some specific instances that sort of helped crystallize the whole thing and really went, oh, okay, oh, now I get what's going on. Um, and then actually what was funny was after I made the complaint and we started to investigate the complaint and I saw how she chose to defend herself against the complaint, which was just flat out lie about certain things. That's when I realized, oh, not only has it been true the entire time, but she knew what she was doing. And there was me, you know, I can be um, overly trusting at times. Uh, I believe what's happening. I take things at face value. And I realized that I had kind of let myself down. I hadn't been critical enough of what was going on. I mean, I think it's, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, being someone who generally gives people the benefit of the doubt or believes in the good in people, you know, that's, it's not a bad thing. And so, but... And yet you found yourself in this situation where you're like, gosh, I should have seen this. I should have been a little more vigilant about it. Um, how do you how do you feel now in terms of like that quality in you? It's definitely something I still have. Um, I definitely trust people. I take things at face value. I am sincere and I expect you to be sincere. Uh, I have worked, I have had jobs before where that has been an issue. Um, and I can see how it leaves me open to being taken advantage of when I was a kid. I was very easy to prank. <laughs> One of my cousins used to prank me all the time. Um, that's just who I am. But I think at the same time, I think it also means that, you know, I am very trustworthy. I am very trusting. You know, I am a good judge of character. I also pay attention to red flags. If I see them, I'm very wary of people because I know that I may not notice the thing when it's actually happening. So if I see and if I notice it, then it's probably actually an iceberg and there's way more below the surface than what's actually going on. You know, I, I think, um, I don't want to call it naivety. I call it just being a little too trusting. And I think if I were going to choose between being too trusting or not trusting enough, I would choose being too trusting every time. I I can appreciate that. I will say like, Something that was interesting to me during the the midst of the pandemic and before the 2020 election, when things felt really, really dark and difficult, a lot of my friends were coming to me for hope. And I never really mm. saw myself as like a really optimistic person or anything like that. But it was one of those things that I kind of paused for a second. And I was like, huh, okay, no, I do really believe that the best is going to happen or that things are going to be okay or that we'll figure it out. And so I guess I was like, huh, interesting. That was like something that I reflected on during that time. So I can appreciate someone who does give people the benefit of the doubt and believes the best in people. Yeah. Why not? When you recognize this thing and this previous manager that you had had, like, oh, she was doing this stuff and she knew, what was it like to actually like make those first movements formally around bringing up concerns internally with the company? 
Wow. Yeah. Great question. Hmm. You know, that was a really, really difficult time. That was the first time I'd ever made a, any sort of official, unofficial complaint about any body in the workplace. And I'd had difficult managers before. I'd actually had, I'd been, um, had another leader when I first got to New York who was, uh, punished for bullying several members of the team. But I wasn't the one that reported wow. them. I just kind of took it. I was just someone who just kind of took it and kept moving. Um, I'd never really thought to, I always just felt like, you know, the workplace is going to be difficult. There's going to be difficult people in it. And you kind of just have to keep moving. In this instance, you know, I think, you know, having a supportive partner helps and, and another person who you're sharing these things with helps you see quite how different it is from other experiences. Um, also, it can give you the courage to stand up for yourself. And so I eventually went to a leader whom I trusted after probably about six months of like throwing up flares to other leaders that, you know, whoever would come in my path to see if there were, you know, there were any sort of receptive ears that might um, hear me out. And there weren't any. Mm. Then I reported it. And then at first you kind of think, at first you, there's a little bit of relief. You know, obviously there's fear doing it. Then there's relief when people say all the right things up front. Oh, I'm so sorry this is happening and we're going to investigate and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was told I could choose between like the types of complaint that I wanted to make. Do you want to make just an unofficial verbal or do you want to make a written formal? And I went for written formal and they said, oh, well, you know, we're going to investigate. It's going to take three weeks. Da, 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 da. You have to write up uh about what happened. That actually was a interesting part of the process, writing up about what happened to me because, and this is something that I speak to people about all the time um, because, you know, it's kind of what my, uh, my website is about. So there's a phenomenon. Uh, I still haven't given it a name yet, but when people speak about racialized trauma, they do a really, really poor job of articulating what happened, defending themselves and attributing the motive that they have already attributed in the way that they tell the story. So just like them, you know, I almost didn't mention race in the write-up. I left pieces of the puzzle out. Um, I didn't tell a linear story and it was actually, you know, Mm. I did four or five different drafts of what happened with my wife reviewing them and then sending them back to me with notes all over them because she had lived it with me. And she was like, you are not putting your best foot forward. And it is part of it, I think, is the shame of putting all those experiences that you allowed to happen on paper, having to admit that, yeah, this, you know, when you're going through them, you're able to separate them all. So they all just feel like small moments. But when you put them all together, you start to feel like, no, that, I mean, I wouldn't have let them just do that to me. So it must have been more like this. And, you know, you don't write it in its honest in the most honest way. And then there's also just the fact that I think, you know, to get ahead in the workplace, I had learned not to speak about race at work. And so, and I had not accused, I was not accusing people of racism. You know, there were lots of microaggressions all the time and I was never speaking about them, I was never dealing with them. So to all of a sudden now have to be like, I think this person is a racist. I think this person has treated me differently because of my race. I think this person like is refusing is doing things intentionally to me it was really really hard and I think I was very hard on myself for a long time as a result 
or because I didn't feel like I did myself justice. I felt I'd let myself down in the way that I represented myself when I was going through that experience. And that was really hard. I mean, that is so real. Like, you know, I do a lot of (laughs) study about emotions and personality and things like that. And one of the things I heard really recently is... um, that, you know, we we can experience sadness when we experience like a disconnection in a relationship and we experience um, grief in, in that sense too when uh, a connection is, is severed. And the thing that I reflect on in my own experience is like, I have a lot of grief for the me that was really disconnected from myself during times, you know, in my teens and my 20s or these things where like I wasn't showing up for myself. And that kind of what you were just saying brought that up a little bit for me to think um, both there's probably a little bit of, yeah, like you said, sadness and and grief, but shame or embarrassment about like what you let happen. But it's almost like I didn't have my own back and that makes me really sad. Right. Yeah. And you always think, you know, it's like yeah. when you have an argument and then you're in the shower later and you remember the thing you should have said. You always think that when the moment comes, you will be your best advocate. And I wasn't, you know, I was, I was really, it was my lowest moment was also my weakest moment. And that is, that was very surprising. So coming, coming out of that, I mean, clearly this probably went on for a while in terms of like having to defend yourself, having to, you know, investigations going on and things like that. And then eventually you left, maybe not fully on your own terms, or, or would you say that it was? No, not fully. I was, I was very much pushed out. I want to pause here for a moment to talk about emotions. So we were talking about this kind of grief or the shame that came with reflecting back on the experience of being essentially, in a way, um, marginalized or victimized within a company. And we talked a bit about how there's a feeling of sadness or shame or grief around maybe not having your own back. And I've been really inspired in my own work as a human, but also my work with clients by the work of Susan David. And she wrote a book called Emotional Agility. And in that, she talks about the physiological process of an emotion. We have a lot of words for things that we say, our thoughts or our feelings or whatever it is that's going on kind of in our internal experience, but there's actually a chemical process when it comes to emotions. There's a trigger to something, and then there's this physiological process that we experience that lasts only 90 seconds. For most emotions, our body goes through this chemical process of 90 seconds. So thinking about how we can stay with an emotion before we jump off into what we're going to do about it or what does it mean or how do I avoid it? 90 seconds may feel like an eternity to stay with an emotion, but many of the emotions we experience, we don't even give them that. And then what happens is we end up swirling on them for days or weeks or longer. And there's a really good analogy of pushing a ball underwater. And if you've ever tried to push a ball underwater, you know that it's really hard to keep it underwater. You might push it down, it's going to pop back up. You push it down harder with more force, it's going to pop back up with a vengeance. And that's very similar to ignoring or repressing or denying our emotions. 
And so I would encourage you to try this practice of acknowledging an emotion, naming what it is, and staying with it for up to 90 seconds and really visualize there are chemicals coursing through your body and I'm experiencing this thing right now and I'm just going to be with it. And then what we get to do is really ask, like, what information is here? What am I, what am, what can I learn from it? What can I understand about it? And then I can decide what I want to go do about it, if anything. And so in the Enneagram framework, which I work with a lot, we talk about kind of these three centers of intelligence and 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 really rooted in these three core human needs, which are connection, security, and autonomy. We all need connection as humans. And when there's a lack of it or a loss of it, we experience sadness and grief. We all need security, material security, um, the means and the resources to live our lives. And when there's a lack of it or a loss of it or a threat to it, we experience fear. And we all need a sense of autonomy. We need a sense of agency. We need to feel like I can move about the world freely and I'm not being controlled or restricted in the things that I do and nobody's infringing on my own boundaries. But when there's a lack of autonomy or loss of autonomy or a threat to autonomy, that's when we can often experience anger. If someone's infringing on my boundaries, whether that's personally, physically, or otherwise, I get angry. And so if we can connect the emotions that we're experiencing back to what might be under threat, what might there be a lack of, what might I feel some loss around, we can really understand what is the most effective action to take next. So I think this is Unfortunately, all too common of an experience, as you had mentioned, like people kind of maybe diminish what really happened to them or don't bring the full truth forward because it is a really emotionally challenging experience. And then ultimately get, I actually was just talking to an entrepreneur friend of mine yesterday who had a really similar situation and, and kind of got pushed out of her company as well because she was bringing this stuff to the table. Um, and ironically, they had recognized her for her work in DEI. So that's especially um, great of an experience, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, unbelievable. So now when it comes right. to talking about it, um, that's that's too much. So mm-hmm. as you left, like, what was the experience for you of kind of like regathering? Like, was there a healing process for you after you left that company it's a lot. It's a lot to navigate. It's a lot of emotions. And then for something to end and end in a, on terms that are not yours. Where did you go from there? Well, I mean, luckily, the second that I stopped working there, I was already working on Inside Voices. And so I had something to sort of channel my energy into. But emotionally, yeah, I was drained. You know, I was in therapy. I was, you know, just trying to recover trying to, um, you know, like I say, the most painful part of it was really that I hadn't been a good advocate for myself and I was still really disappointed with myself. I was disappointed with the fact that it had taken me so long to figure out what was going on. You know, I was angry at the company, but I was more, what I didn't realize was the thing that was really getting in my way was my own, I was grieving the idea of myself that I had before I'd gone through this experience that I would be able to walk through any wall, 
that there was no sort of racialized trauma in the workplace that could ever stop me and that, you know, I had such thick skin that nothing could ever get in my way. And then I was like, oh, no, I really got knocked down um, a peg or two here. And I didn't really do a good job of figuring out what was going on or adjusting. Um, I had to learn to forgive myself, and I did, and I have. And I now understand, you know, that's one of the reasons why I care about what I do so much, because I see this, and through my work, I saw this so commonly. Um, I see this so commonly. Really, you know, talented, capable professionals of color who were working their way through the, you know, working their way up the rungs and then all of a sudden met their, you know, their nemesis, the person or the organization that really took them down and watching them adjust to that, watching them understand the world is not, not even that the world is not what they thought it was, but that their reactions to the world is not what they thought it would be. You know, you only find out who you are when you go through the challenge. You know, you think you know, but you don't. Um, and that took some time. I'd say probably a year later, I was starting to feel better about the whole experience. You know, I considered legal action and ended up sort of missing the way that it's done in the UK is a little different. So I kind of missed the window uh, for for pursuing legal action, which I was, again, disappointed with. But I decided to just, you know, take it, channel all that energy into building something and move forward. Um, and I think that's the only thing I could do at the time. Uh, but I think it's important that for anybody kind of going through that experience, people move at their own pace, uh, give yourself space and time, rest. Um, and then definitely, definitely don't just throw yourself back into a similar environment. Like I can't even imagine what life would have been like had I just tried to move to another job and then just gone back to masking and looking over my shoulder. You know, I, I've worked with people before who I can tell had been abused at their previous workplaces. And you can tell from the way that they are so vigilant and concerned about mistreatment and uh, misunderstandings. And I didn't want to be one of those people. Yeah, to always be like on the defense, right? It's the emotional tax, Mm -hmm. it's the emotional labor, like carrying that burden every single day with you to work. And so you're building you're building your own thing and you're building something that actually can solve the problem that you had. What were those early days like for you? Um, and how have you, how have you brought yourself into that work? Well, uh, so I mean, listen, entrepreneurship is so different <laughs> to the corporate world. <laughs> you know, you, you go from, um, having a schedule that's largely set by other people to having a schedule that you suddenly set for yourself. You're responsible not just for how much you work, but what you do, uh, how you, how you spend your time, how much, how to distribute it between the different things, what matters the direction of the company, but also not just the strategy, but the tactics. Um, I had a coach at the time who helped me kind of build better habits around working. You know, when I was working for other companies, if I had, a day that wasn't particularly productive, I still went home at the same time and I had like a whole bunch of things to do. When you're working for yourself, there is always something you can be doing. I remember before I started, an entrepreneur friend of mine said to me, he said, uh, just remember from now on, everywhere you go, your boss is there. And I was like, <laughs> hmm. At the time, I was just like, yeah, okay, cool. And like I, from then on, you know, I just worked really, really hard. Like I threw Everything that I had into my work, I worked seven days a week, you know, 
12, 14 hour days, whatever was necessary. I say necessary. Necessary is a, a fluid term. Right, exactly. Uh, this is how I identified that I was a perfectionist, um, going through this experience, realizing that I was delaying putting things out because I wanted to make it an extra 5, 10% better when really it was good enough already. Um, mm. That I would dive deep into problems. I really had to get good at managing myself so that I didn't just spend time doing the thing that I enjoyed doing or I felt like I was good at, but I also put enough time into the things that I wasn't good at. And after probably 18 months of overworking myself, burning myself out, you know, really driving myself crazy, I had a a new coach and I was talking to her about how I was working and, and I told her the thing, you know, my friend said, wherever you go, your boss is there. And she said, okay, but what kind of boss do you want to be? And that like stopped me in my tracks because when I had been a manager of people, even at that time I had people working for me and I would never expect them to work as much as I was expecting myself to work. In fact, I would suggest that they didn't because I knew that I would not get the best out of them if they were working 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week, I'd be like, your rest is what enables you to come to work and produce at a high level. I need your mind to be rested. I need you to be fluid and, and ready to adapt and, and take on new challenges and, and lean towards the things that work for you and against you. And I need you to trust yourself. And I wasn't doing any of that. Um, so it was an adjustment period, you know, a good 18 months of really uh, thinking that if I just worked really, really, really hard, I would be able to solve every problem and then learning that some problems are not going to be solved. Some problems uh, need more time. And also I needed to work smart, not just work hard. What did you learn about your work style or your thinking style or your learning style through that experience? Uh, So if you've done Myers-Briggs, I'm the logistician. Um, I am definitely you know one for using logic to fix a tar- a fixed problem i also found out that i often um when i have a really big new task or or like a a problem to solve i will kind of put it on the back burner at the back of my mind and solve it in the background while i do other tasks and then all of a sudden i'll have an epiphany and i'll realize that this entire time i've been thinking about this problem and I mean, to be honest, it's actually a really great way for me to come up with solutions. Those have been some of my best ideas. Um, I also found out, like I said, that I am a perfectionist. Um, and I always thought the idea of a perfectionist was just ridiculous. Like I remember um, when I was a kid seeing TV shows and they talk about what is your biggest flaw? And people would say they were a perfectionist. And I was like, first of all, not sure how that's a flaw, but second of all, like, Nothing can be perfect. So why would you ever be a perfectionist? And then I realized that a perfectionist isn't just someone who thinks that their work, who tries to make their work perfect, but it's also someone who tries to make sure that their what they do is their best version every time. And that was my issue. Every single thing that I put out, it wasn't just okay that it was good. It needed to be the best that I could do of it. So if I was writing something, go over it a hundred times. If I'm sending something out, let's make sure we review it before we send it out. Oh, let's move this an inch to the left. Like, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, sometimes you just have to, sometimes you just have to ship. Um, and I had to learn that. 
Ah, perfectionism. (laughs) A lot of you can probably relate to some of the things that Echo is talking about. We often identify with these labels and just chalk things up to, oh, I'm a perfectionist or, oh, I'm a people pleaser. And we don't always get to the root of what's really happening so that we can actually understand it and maybe even possibly make some changes. Perfectionism for the first part can look like having to get every piece exactly right. Your work being without reproach. And this has come up in previous episodes. I need everything to be impeccable. And this can either be really based on like your internal standards or your external perception, and probably sometimes some combination of both. But internally, this sounds like I have to be perfect in order to be worthy. Or I have to be perfect in in order to, to be a good person. Externally, this might sound like I have to be perfect in order to keep my standing in my job because I'm judged by higher standards than others. And so it can also show up in procrastination. And this is something that like I've experienced a lot, especially as an entrepreneur. I want to do this thing perfectly. And so I put it off. And it may be due to a fear of having it be done and not getting the outcome we desire. And I noticed this of myself in the early days of self at work, and not to say it doesn't still come up, but much more before. I would procrastinate on putting my ideas and my content out into the world because of my own fear of being judged. I use perfectionism as an excuse not to move and use perfectionism as as a reason to put things off and keep myself safe from the judgment that I perceived would be out there. And so what can we do about it? I would say the first step is really identifying what's causing it. What's the belief deep down that might be at the root of our behaviors? And then we can figure out kind of what do we want to do to address it? If it's external, maybe it's a place where you could bring someone else in to give you perspective, a trusted advisor, mentor, manager, to run an idea by, to check in with or touch base with before you're going to share something in a big meeting, to get a, a second opinion, if you will. And if it's internal, well, (laughs) you're going to start getting tired of me saying this, but that's going to require working on your relationship to those emotions that we already talked about a little bit in this episode. But even just acknowledging the fear that's at the root of the perfectionism is really helpful. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I think for a lot of people who, if you've only ever had corporate jobs, uh, Maybe if you've worked in a startup, you'll have it. If you've only ever had corporate jobs, it's hard to really know who you are professionally. Like, what do you do when everything falls down and there's no manual, there's nobody else to ask, there's nothing to do other than to just like fix it? Like, can you figure things out? Can you look at something you've never looked at before, never touched before, and find a way to get it from A to B? Um, And I learned that about myself that I can do that. And I, I treasure that now. I, I kind of hate the word confidence because I feel like sometimes it's just this like veneer of of something, but it's like this this grounded um, sense of like believing in yourself, like knowing that you're capable of figuring things out that you can develop in you. 
have a blank page and you're like, hey, build something from this. So I think that's cool that in that experience, you also have kind of solidified some of those things internally for yourself. Yeah, like at EY, everything you do, someone's done it before. And so you're often just asking people like, oh, how did you do this? And you're kind of afraid to fail a little bit because like, I don't want to just submit it and it'd be bad. And then someone be like, oh, why didn't you just ask Jack? Or why didn't you look what we did last year? But in entrepreneurship, I learned that there was nobody to ask. There was no reference point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to fail. You know, you learn through failure when you just take an, make an attempt. So I just plug right. Everything just gets my best shot. I just throw something at it. If it doesn't work, what I learned from that is a valuable experience. And now I know. Next time I'll get it right. Yeah. What are some things that you changed, like, as you learned about how you work best in in your style and the way you think and like these ideas of I'll just like let something kind of process in the back of my head and come up with a better idea than if I sit down and try to, you know, struggle through it. With all of that, what are some actual like changes that you made in the way that you go about running your business or um, executing? That's a great question. I think one of the things that I've had to get better at is communicating with people my communicating my style with people to enable them to work best with me you know i tell people i can seem stubborn or defensive um but i actually treasure i know that i can't be right all the time i treasure new ideas i treasure challenge i treasure disagreement because i know that through that we'll end up with the correct idea i've worked with leaders before who they don't want to be disagreed with, or even if you disagree with them and they can feel, you can sit, you know, they can't reason why they think they're right. They just move on. I'm not that leader. I want to, if you think there is something that we are doing that is incorrect, I want you to tell me about it, but I'm not just going to assume that you're right. I'm going to say, tell me why. Like, let's, you know, battle it out for lack, for lack of a better term, um, because I'm not going to be right every time. And so I do need that. But also, I'm not going to make decisions that I don't understand. I need to understand why it doesn't work that way. Um, So communicating that up front to people and letting them know, I need you to challenge me when it doesn't make sense to you. That will make the company better. But I need you to also not take offense and understand that, you know, it may feel, you know, you're arguing with your boss, but like, this is what I want. (laughs) You know, you're not putting yourself in jeopardy. Um, That's important. Um, I also have had to get better with time management. Um, and blocking off work from my life. You know, like I said, I used to just, every waking minute of every single day was work-related. Even when I was out with friends, I'd be in the back of my mind thinking about work. Um, And that meant that I never rested. It meant I was never off the clock. Um, And the lack of actual joy in my life was hindering my development. So I started getting really um, firm with myself about when I will work and when I won't. Uh, I started actually a seven-day, to get into the weeds, I started a seven-day structure uh, where every week is seven days. Two of those days, I'm going to, two of those nights, I'm going to work really late. Like I'll work until midnight, one, whatever. And then two nights, I'm going to spend spend time with my wife two nights I spend time with friends and my wife and then one night I spend on my own gathering my thoughts I'm an introvert I need time to sort of reflect and understand what's been happening around me 
you know, when I break down the week like that, I have a successful week every time because, you know, making sure that the people that are in my life get enough time and I get enough from them because they also refuel me. But then I also get that moment on my own where I'm not working um, to just let my brain relax, let it make sense of all the stimuli and all of the experiences that I've been having. All of those things, when put together, they really, they're the bits. It's almost like they're the fuel that I'm using to grow. Um, whereas I used to cut out everything except for the working late and then expect myself to somehow come up with new ways of thinking, new perspectives when I wasn't really exposing myself to anything other than myself and my laptop. Yeah, it's like that the old school like computer defragmentation process. I think about it as like, because like I can relate, you know, and it's like my brain needs to like make sense of all the things that are in there and file things away and reorganize a little bit. And you just cannot do that when you're like staring at a screen all day, every day. And, you know, even if you're getting enough sleep or whatever, it's like you have to like you said, you know, be more disciplined about that, but also be disciplined about joy, right? And different experiences and having having that variety um, in your life and connection. So, Actually, that's uh, a great one that you just reminded me of, though, as well. Sleep. Like, when I first started and when I worked for other companies, I always got maybe six to seven hours of sleep. When I started working for myself, after the first year, I started getting seven to, well, seven to eight, seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. And I realized that I was a significantly better operator when I had enough sleep. You know, um, I read this book, Why We Sleep. I wish I could remember who wrote it. Uh, and it talks about, you know, the power of sleep and, 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 and how important it is. And it says that people that chronically undersleep learn to operate at that level of um, deprivation and as a result, they don't even realize that they're deprived anymore. They think that this is just who they are. And it's only after several months of enough sleep that they see the difference. And once I did that, I was like, oh, like I am actually <laughs> cutting off like 20% of my brain because I missed that one hour a night. I should just get it. And so actually, yeah. um, and I start my days later now. Like I won't start my day until 10 a.m. I won't have any meetings, any calls, any work before 10 a.m., because I know that I'm a night owl, I'll get to bed a little bit late and I give myself enough time to make sure I get my eight hours because that is how I'll be at my best. That's great. I think those, and I mean, this is, you know, what's the podcast is called Working Your Way. And it's like, what are those adjustments that you can make that work for you? And I think it might be Matt Walker or something like that. The book, I, I know the book. Um, and it is, it's, it's pretty wild to think about, oh, I've been walking around with this fog over my brain, you know, for such a long time. And then I started getting enough sleep and it's like, all of a sudden, wow, what a, what a difference. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. I want to take a moment here to highlight Echo's seven-day structure because I think that the way he's done it is such a good example of designing your work around what you need, both inside of work and outside of work. And one of the best parts and the challenges of being an entrepreneur is actually just figuring out how to work your way. From personal experience, it's a huge shift from corporate structure to total autonomy over your day and the work that you do. And it actually requires some really heavy lifting to get where you want to be, to understand what is working your way even look like and, and how do I build that into my day and how do I do more of that. And Echo's routine won't necessarily work for everyone, 
but it works for him and it allows him to get everything he needs out of the different parts of his life. So I would encourage you, whether you're an entrepreneur or you work in a corporate world, embrace experimentation in how you structure your days, how you structure your weeks, figure out what the right routine for you is. And if compartmentalizing certain days for certain things really helps you, try that out. Or if there's more of a a flow to what needs to be done, maybe you try that out too. But in any case, all of this to say, working your way requires you to learn and experiment and adjust. And so embrace that spirit of experimentation, that spirit of experimentation, and see what happens. So as you move forward with Inside Voices and some other ventures, how are you thinking about bringing yourself into that from an authenticity standpoint, like building a career that allows you to be you? That's a really good question. And one I want to try to, I'm going to try to be clear about it. I once, I once heard a, a, um, queer person on a TV show say that being a queer adult is trying to unpack the parts of yourself that are really you from the parts of yourself that were built as a defense mechanism to protect you from a world that didn't didn't accept you. And I often feel that being a Black person in a white world is very much like that. And I know that... (laughs) Uh, I don't know how much time you spent in the UK, but the UK is a very like, um, I don't want to say subversive, but like subliminal culture. It's a lot of conversation, you know, a lot of communication that's being, that's being expressed, but without being ex- explicitly said. And like we talked about, you know, I take things at face value. So that's always been very difficult for me. Um, I, there are lots of parts of my personality, maybe even parts that I like, that I probably would not have developed had I not grown up in that environment. And I'm trying to understand what parts of me existed before that I would like to be able to sort of um, re- bring back to life um, when, as I try to sort of analyze myself and consider who I would have been had I grown up in the environment that I'm in now, as opposed to the environment that I started in. So I am trying to lean into joy. I'm trying to lean into things that interest me and, 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 and draw my attention naturally. Um, I'm trying to lean into pursuit that doesn't necessarily have a clear productivity endpoint, um, and then weave those into work where it feels appropriate. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer for how that impacts my future ventures at the moment, but I do feel as though I'm kind of on a, a journey to understand and explore myself more to expand myself over areas that I'd never really given myself the option to sort of consider and then see what that does to my professional life. Um, unfortunately, I'm so kind of early into that journey and uh, I'm still trying to figure it out that I can't really speak to what it's going to do. But, you know, like we've spoken about, I am starting a podcast, the idea that I had for that podcast. In fact, the the origin of that podcast was supposed to just be doing something that brings me joy. It wasn't supposed to be, oh, I want to start a podcast, you know, to have some success. And so I've ended up leaving the 
um, leaving the theme for the podcast undefined until I start doing it and I feel what does draw my attention. So I think one thing I am trying to do as I look forward is try to predict less because my predictions are all steeped in who I have been and who I think thought I needed to be. And I'm trying to just do more and then let the actions take me towards what I want, as opposed to thinking about what I want and then acting in that way. Yeah, the the switch from corporate to entrepreneurship, even of I have a plan, I'm going to follow the plan, I have my strategic priorities, I know what I'm going to do to address each one of those, right? And it's like all of a sudden now you are in this world of entrepreneurship where you actually just need to follow the trail one step at a time and like you have no idea where 10 steps ahead even ends um which is it's just a wild experience (laughs) what is what's one thing that you really enjoy that has nothing to do with work i love which one do i want to pick i love music like I always grew up with music. Um, like I said, I was an introvert. And I was also an only child. So uh, music, you know, television was my best friend, but like music was like the, the soundtrack to my life in a way that I never even thought about loving music until I met someone who told me that they don't really listen to music. And then I was like, well, I like I think music is, is like inherent to human beings. You know, you can see the power of music. In fact, I have a theory at the moment that I think if a lot of people had grown up with more live music, they probably would not have um, been quite as passionate about religion. <laughs> There's a reason why many or most religions use music and, and particularly like um, collective singing and like and shared music and like songs of praise because like it moves us. And like I use music to, to motivate. I use it to understand myself. I use it to sort of... Um, to steep myself in my own emotions and go deeper into who I am and what I'm experiencing. And I just love it. I love to go deep into it. I love to explore new music. I love people who can bring me new music. Oh man. There are people who I've had in my life who our relationship has only been about music. (laughs) You know, we barely know anything about each other, but but we send people, send each other music. You know, it's just, uh, it's incredible. That's amazing. Um, It certainly is. Like even singing, uh, like, or if I need to shift my energy or things like that, right? Like putting on a different song, like I've recognized just how um, that can be such a tool for me as well. Right. And we all have it. You know, that feeling of like when you're about to get in the shower and you're like, let me just get this song on before I, <laughs> before I do it. Like we, can, we can all feel that connection. It's important. Yeah. It's like, it's a wasted moment if I don't have like a, a soundtrack to it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. That's great. So you mentioned a couple of things. I want to talk about like what um what tools have worked for you? What where do you lean on for support? And you mentioned things like therapy and coaching. Um, how has that played a role in you kind of helping to deconstruct like what's you and what's the coping mechanism and where do you want to go from here and and um what does your vision look like? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, you know, um, bringing in other people, experts, whether it be in, you know, just to solve small problems or whether it be just to help you figure out yourself. So, yes, I have a therapist um, who has been great for helping me understand myself, 
how parts of myself weave into uh, different decisions. So like being a perfectionist, for example, once, and you know, she raised it in the most uh, kind way possible, like, oh, how does the term perfectionist sound to you? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and then now that I know that I am one, I see it appearing everywhere in my life, from my relationship to my work, you know, to my friendships. Um, and then I also have a coach. Um, the coach that I'm working with now, I've worked with before, but I've had, you know, several coaches. This one is the best for me. And I would, you know, always recommend to people shop around. Um, this coach, you know, we started with a free consultation and 10 minutes in, she like stopped me mid-sentence, unpacked a bunch of things that I was doing, told me specifically what I was doing in a way that just nobody's ever read me quite so clearly. And that's why I work with her. Um, I find that really powerful. Like people that can help you understand yourself because the reality is like you can't see yourself. You know, you can never understand how you're perceived by others. You can never really get outside of your own decisions. And, um, you know, there's things like uh, the Ikea effect where if you build something yourself, then you consider it to be of higher value than if you were to just purchase it or take it from somebody else. So we already know that like self-perspective um, is, you know, kind of skews how you see the world. So you need those people. And then as an entrepreneur, particularly as a solo founder, I have a cabal of advisors whom I speak to, you know, different regularities, some weekly, some monthly, some quarterly, who I can go to if I have issues or who I just generally share with. Um, we just advise each other, hold each other accountable. Um, and they're just really good, like really smart people who you can just share the issue that you're tackling with and just get their perspective, almost like having lots of co-founders. Um, and those people are really, really valuable to me just because, you know, while they may not be subject matter experts, they are just ready to, they, the way that you describe a problem can often trigger someone else identifying what the root is in a way that if you just sat with yourself, you would never figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Something happens in the processing out loud or of how they hear it or how they receive what you're saying or how they mirror it back to you. So that's great. Exactly. So what is next for you? What's next for Inside Voices? Yeah. Uh, so as you may know, uh, we've joined partnership partners with Canaries. Um, and so I'm helping Canaries build out business development and partnerships. Now Canaries is the market leader in DEI technology, helping companies use data to improve their diversity, equity, and inclusion functions, build strategies that work for them, execute on those strategies, understand what employees really want, and then build environments that actually include everyone. Um, and so I'm really passionate about that and the future of this company. Um, and then personally, you know, like I said, my journey of exploration continues, uh, just trying to make sure that I stay true to who I am, figure out exactly who that is, um, lean into what gives me joy, uh, make decisions from instinct and try to be a little bit less, uh, I don't want to say less risk averse, but continue to take steps without knowing exactly which direction I'm going in. I don't need to see the full field before I jump onto it. Yeah. And what would you be doing if you didn't have to fight for equity and inclusion? 
Fantastic question. <laughs> um, fantastic question. I have lived a life where I was successful and well enough paid doing something that I didn't care about. And I was miserable. You know, I, I could do it. I could probably do it again. But even the worst day, working, waking up, doing what I do now is better than most of my days then. And so I think if I wasn't working on some, on, you know, I mean, this is the most important thing to me in the world. If I wasn't thinking about equity, then I'd probably be working on something to do with climate. Um, because, you know, I, I saw a tweet that said children that are like, uh, gifted or like high achievers, they go through school, then they go through college, and they they get a job that is you know for them effectively purposeless, but they get caught in this cycle of action and achievement and then reward, and they think that just being good at the job will be enough to motivate them for the rest of their career, and then after a while of doing that, pushing that paper around, they actually identify that that's not enough, and I reached that moment um and now it's kind of hard to look back and so i think even if i weren't doing this i would still have to do something i cared about yeah yeah it's like that having that sense of purpose having a sense of maybe making the world a little closer to perfect in in any way that it could but i think that's yeah the the um, way that i've heard it before is like achievement autopilot and it's it's one of those things where you check the box, you get validation, you feel good. You check another box, you get validation, you feel good. And it kind of is that cycle of like, and I I was in it. So I can certainly like say this with zero judgment because it's very easy to kind of like get into that mode. And um, and then once you take that step back, it's like, ooh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, how I could get back there. Um, so. I yeah. And also that. I think if you're coming from an environment where, you know, not to smash my mom, my mom did it incredibly for me, but I think I've long passed out earned her, you know. So I've, I've already surpassed the dreams that I had when I was a child about how much I was going to be able to earn or what I was going to be able to achieve. You know, I my life now looks very different to the life that I thought I was going to have. Um, so it's no longer just about getting things or hitting some sort of or proving myself. It's now, okay, so like, if that's going to be true and that's going to continue to be true, then like, what do I want my life to have been about? You know, I have to be here, right? Like I'm here, I have to keep working, we have to do something. If I'm going to put all my time into something and I'm going to succeed at something, am I really just going to, you know, have a job where I'm just making rich men more rich? That just feels empty to me. Like what a way to go. Um, And also, you know, there are, you know, I am the child of a Ghanaian immigrant to the UK. I emigrated from the UK to the US. You know, as a as a Ghanaian, there are not that many people who have my heritage, who have my opportunity, who have my privilege, who have my experience, who are here. It almost feels like I would be doing a disservice to them to spend that time just making myself personally rich instead of trying to create a world that is significantly better so that the next generation is able to do even more. 
Like, what is the point? I guess I am living my ancestors' wildest dreams, but personal joy and satisfaction is not all they wanted for me. You know, we got. I want to be a giant that someone else can sit on the shoulders of. And I will also say, to reflect back to you, that like you living a great, rich life of your own is is helping the world in a lot of ways because there is this ripple effect that we don't even, we're not privy to all of the ways that someone who is really living aligned with their own purpose and who they are can impact people really positively. So I'll just, I'll just drop that in there to say, yeah, you don't need to change the world in order to change the world. (laughs) Um, And that it's happening already. Thank you. That means a lot. It is, it is, it is great to remember that because it's easy to forget and it could have been so different. Right? Like it's, it's so easy to just live the life that was just mapped out and, and never expect more. Maybe that sometimes I think it's genetics. My mom left home when she was 18 years old. And so I'm like, maybe I get it from you. Like this, like seeking more, expecting more, always wanting like to find the thing. Um, hopefully it's not pathological. Hopefully I'm able to stop before <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, when I get there. But yeah, like that's why, like I said, like that's one of the reasons why I was so glad you invited me on this podcast because uh, having the opportunity to be vulnerable and honest and frank with people so that, like you say, people can just sort of um, watch me live uh, and, and through that get the courage to also live in their truth. I love that. Amazing. Well, that is a really beautiful note to end on. I think there will maybe need to be a time when I invite you back to to talk about all the wisdom you have around how to find a culture that is inclusive and all the amazing things that you're working on. Um, until then, where where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at echo at insidevoices.io, uh, www.insidevoices.io to write reviews about how your company treats people of color. And if your company is having issues with diversity, equity, inclusion, which they are, uh, come to canaries.com, uh, hit us up, and we will help you use data to make decisions that actually get success. I love that. You're like, if you work in a company, you need canaries. <laughs> point blank that's just it so (laughs) amazing thank you so much for for this conversation and for sharing about yourself with me and uh with anyone who's listening i appreciate you being on thank you anytime echo is a great example of someone who takes their pain and turns it into purpose and it's so fascinating to look around and see just how many entrepreneurs have this origin story for their business rooted in their own personal stories. Personally, I dream of a day where we don't have a whole bunch of people of color trying to fix the problems in the world that they had to deal with. But until that day, I think we're going to continue to see more and more people take this independent path in order to make the changes that they don't feel like are are happening fast enough. In this episode, we talked about emotions. Uh, We talked about it a lot. And I want to leave a couple of links in the show notes for some of Susan David's work around emotional agility. I think you'll really appreciate how she talks about emotions and kind of reframes them as data and not directives. And last but not least, I want to talk about that ripple effect. I said to Echo... What came to me in that moment was 
you don't need to change the world to change the world. Because most people think they need to change the world through what they're doing. But I know that you can change the world just by who you're being. So I want to leave you with this one question. If you knew people were watching, people who need you to be their inspiration and their example of what it looks like to be true to yourself, how would you show up? Thanks so much for listening to Working Your Way. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our episodes, show notes, additional resources, and more at selfatwork.com forward slash podcast.